Do you feel emotionally safe? Or do you close out intimacy because it threatens you? Welcome to episode 146 of The Recovery Show. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. Today, we're going to talk about emotional safety. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at The Recovery Show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I'm your host today. Today's topic was inspired by an email that I received recently. Hi, Spencer. I'd just like to say, firstly, that your show has been a lifesaver for me. I came into Al-Anon in October, and it has changed my life for the better. Your podcast has really helped. Anyway, my question is emotional security. I recently detached from my relationship with my qualifier, and because of that, he detached with a meat cleaver. There was a lot of emotional and verbal abuse in the relationship, but I always say, well, there was nothing physical. And so I completely invalidate myself and my own experience. I just wondered if you could do a show on emotional safety. Some people in my community think I'm a wimp because of not being able to tough it out with my abuser. If you have any helpful thoughts or could do an episode on that. I feel like physical abuse is a lot more obvious than emotional abuse, and I just get swept up in denial really easily. Thank you. All the best, Sarah. I had some immediate reactions on on reading this email. The first is that emotional abuse, I think, in my opinion, is is actually harder than physical abuse to deal with because with physical abuse, the the scars, the the injuries, unless they're extremely serious, which I know they can be, I'm not trying to make any light of this, they do go away. But the emotional scars, and I think I think Sarah hits on this, they're not visible, and and so we're less likely to see them explicitly, to see them deliberately consciously, uh, but they can last much, much longer. Our body has an amazing ability to repair itself, but it seems to me that our spirits need, need more help. The memory of pain does fade, but it, it leaves often an invisible scar that can affect the way that we live our lives, can affect the way that we relate to other people, can affect our potential for serenity, joy, happiness, and we don't see them. So I had to go look up these terms. Sarah used two terms in her email. She used the term emotional security, and she used the term emotional safety. And when when I read the email, and and very possibly when she wrote it, it, I felt like those mean the same thing. They're just, you know, different ways of saying it. But I went went on the internet, Google is my friend, so is Wikipedia, because I found definitions for each of them that are somewhat different. And emotional security, according to Wikipedia, is the measure of stability of an individual's emotional state. So let's, let's, let's unpack that a little bit. The measure of the stability of an individual's emotional state. So if I am emotionally secure, my emotional state is stable and is not likely to be changed by external events, at least small, small things, or even medium-sized things. And and when something comes along that that you know changes my emotional state, if I'm emotionally secure, I can get back to that place that I started from. I can get back to my my center, my serenity, you know, fairly easily, I guess. And Wikipedia goes on and says, emotional insecurity, or simply insecurity, is a feeling of general unease or nervousness that may be triggered by perceiving of oneself to be vulnerable or inferior in some way, or a sense of vulnerability or instability which threatens one's self-image or ego. I'm trying to unpack those words. So a feeling of general unease or nervousness, is, an, is that sounds like an emotional state, that may be triggered by perceiving oneself to be vulnerable or inferior in some way. And how do we get to that place of being feeling vulnerable or in, inferior in some way? Typically we get there because of 
the way we've been treated by, by other people, by society in our lives. And maybe this was something that happened in childhood. Maybe we lived in, you know, we lived in a, a, an alcoholic or chaotic household and we never knew what was coming. And so as, as we've heard from many people sitting up waiting for father to come home and not knowing whether he's going to be in a good mood or a bad mood and, and living in that fear, that insecurity of what was going to happen around the corner and being not in control of, of what our environment of our, of our own safety. And that sense comes through into adulthood and leaves us in a place where small things can trigger us into that, into that place of feeling uneasy, of feeling nervous, of feeling off balance, out of control. And that, that sense of, as it says in the definition, sense of vulnerability or instability, which threatens oneself, image or ego, I could see where that, that could very easily come from a period of verbal and emotional abuse of somebody telling you that, that you're less than, that you're no good, that, that you never meet expectations. And you come to believe that and you, and you come to have, you know, a poor self image and, and a suppressed ego. So that's emotional security. And this is a, again, measure of stability of an individual's emotional state. So when, when we're emotionally insecure, our emotional state is not stable and is easily rocked off balance. And and I want to come back to that later. I also looked up emotionally, emotional safety. And Wikipedia talks about emotional safety in the context of a relationship. It says when a relationship is emotionally safe, the partners trust each other and routinely give each other the benefit of the doubt in questionable situations. When emotional safety is lost, the partners are inclined to be distrustful, looking for possible hidden meanings and potential threats in each other's words and behaviors. I identify with a number of the pieces of that that definition. Emotional safety in a relationship. Partners trust each other and give each other the benefit of the doubt. We don't. So I guess I'll 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 start with my personal situation. I'm trying I'm trying to think of a of a specific situation, but it's it's not coming to me right now. But there've definitely been incidents where my wife has said something, and I have read what she said as a criticism or attack, which was not at all what she meant. And the same thing has happened in the other direction where I have said something and she has read it as a criticism or attacked and has reacted to that. And so clearly looking at this definition of emotional safety, clearly um, there are at least parts of our relationship that are not emotionally safe where we don't, we don't trust each other and give each other the benefit of the doubt in questionable situations. I don't know where that comes from, but it's, you know, it's helpful for me to identify that because then it is, as I said last week, thinking about um, fourth and fifth steps, taking the inventory and, and determining the exact nature of our wrongs. When we identify where something is coming from, then we have at least a place to start in changing it. We have a place to ask our higher power for help with. This morning I was in a gathering of the mentors in a program we have at our church for our ninth graders, where each youth is paired with a mentor, an adult mentor, who helps to guide them through the process of being able to write down and verbalize what they believe. One of the mentors in the circle talked about a conversation that he had had with his mentee, where the mentee expressed a feeling or a belief, and the mentor used this technique called the five whys. And maybe you've heard of this before, but the way it works is somebody makes a statement, say, I believe such and such, or such and such is is stupid. A statement that, that I might hear from a, a ninth grader, a 14-year-old. And you say, why? And you can do this with yourself when you when you think about something and, 
that you believe or that you feel, you might say, why? That challenges you then to think about, well, what's behind that, you know? And where we're trying to get to with the mentees is to sort of values and beliefs, sort of core values and beliefs. And so with each statement, and then you say why, and you get an answer, and then you say why, and when you can't go any further, you can't answer that question why, the answer is just, well, that's because that's what I believe. Then you found one of those cores. When I react to something that my wife says to me as a criticism or attack, I could say, well, why Why did I take that as a criticism? The answer might be, well, there have been times in the past when that has happened. Um, well, why, et cetera. And, and I'm, not, I'm not explaining this very well, I think, but it's called the five whys because usually you get to a, a core within the five. And you don't usually have to go any deeper than five, and, and often it's less than that. So this is a tool that we can use uh, while we're looking for the, you know, the exact nature of our wrongs or the, you know, what's the feeling behind the feeling behind the feeling? Why am I angry? Well, I'm angry because I felt threatened. Why do I feel threatened? Because I'm insecure about my financial situation. Well, why am I insecure about my financial situation? Well, because, you know, I keep not staying inside my budget. Well, why do I keep not staying inside, you know? Um, Well, because I feel like I am entitled to spend money on things. Well, why do I feel like I'm entitled to spend money on, you know, and and I can keep going here, but eventually I will get to a place where when I say why, it's it's a bottom, it's it's a core, and then there we go. That was a little bit of a rabbit hole, but I think it was an important rabbit hole. I'm looking for possible hidden meanings and potential threats, and, and definitely I, I can do that. So these are some of the ways in which our emotional security or emotional safety can be threatened. So how about getting getting over, getting through, recovering? I like the word recovering. It, 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 it's, a, it's a much more positive word than either getting over or getting through. What can we do um, to increase our feeling or improve our feeling of, of safety and security? So I went, I went out on, on the internet again, and I did a little bit of, of research, and I found some articles about emotional safety um, in particular. I'll put links to all of these in the show notes at therecoveryshow.com slash 146 if you want to read the whole thing. If you want to, and, and I think each of them probably has... Um, you know, links to other other helpful resources. I didn't follow all of them. So there's one from Psychology Today. I think the title was Emotional Safety, How It Works or Doesn't Work. Talks about how we take sensory input and from that we determine whether we're in a safe situation, an unsafe situation, or a life-threatening situation. And the article is talking about some research that indicates that, in fact, our body that there are parts of the nervous system that, that are sort of turned on or turned off in, in each of these three conditions. And so it says, depending on the information gleaned from sensory input, we determine whether the situation we find ourselves in, this refers to both our internal or external situation, is either safe, dangerous, or life-threateningly dangerous. If our sensory input support, supports the notion that the momentary situation we are experiencing is safe, then the most evolved aspect of this part of the nervous system, the one that triggers our social engagement capability, is activated. Okay, so when we feel safe, then we're able to engage socially with other people. We're able to you know, communicate our needs and wants and hear what other people are saying. That's sort of the, the state that, we're, that, we like, that we want to be in. We want to be connected to other people. And this... You know, it's. I, I love the way that my life kind of um, interweaves. Uh, obviously, some higher power going on here. I wanted to do this episode last week, and I just I couldn't get to it. I couldn't get to a point of of feeling that I had something to say. And so I spent a week kind of, you know, thinking on it and doing a little more work, and then went to church this morning. And as I said, the the service was titled "The Importance of Human Interaction." It was put on by our, our high school youth, and there were three 
I would maybe call them sharing if it was in a meeting, three little, three, it was a three-part sermon by three, three different uh, young people. And two of them in particular talked about situations in their life where they were threatened in some way. Uh, one person talked about uh, severe depression. The other person talked about uh, being the victim of, of panic attacks and uh, ending up ending up in the hospital in the emergency room because of that. And the support, and this was the important part, that they both talked about the support that they got from their peers, that they got from their teachers, that they got from their counselors, that without that support, without that human connection, they might not have gotten gotten through and recovered from, you know, where they were. And that this was really important to them. And I think that if, if when we don't feel safe, we, if we can't make that connection, it really inhibits our ability to recover. We have to be able to feel safe to recover. And, you know, we do some things in meetings to help provide that feeling of safety. We have, in most of the meetings that I attend, we have a rule of no crosstalk. So, I can say whatever I need to say and know that you're not going to come back at me with questions. You're not going to come back at me with criticisms, whether they're intended as criticisms or not. I may hear them that way, particularly if I'm not feeling safe. And if I'm not feeling safe, I probably won't say what I need to say at all. The The anonymity that we hold as a core value of the program is another way in which we provide safety. That, you know, what you hear here, what you see here, what you say here, let it stay here. However that goes, is I don't think I have it exactly right. But that I can say what I need to say and have some confidence that it's not going to come back to people that I don't want to have here what I said. If I'm talking about situations in my life, they probably involve other people. And if I'm talking about how those situations have affected me negatively, I really don't want what I say to to come back to those other people. And so knowing that this is not going to happen because of the anonymity, which is the spiritual foundation of our program, uh, helps me to feel safe in saying what I need to say. I think a third way in which we make our recovery environment safe, we make our meetings safe, is by sharing only our own experience by talking from our own heart, from our own experience, and not taking other people's inventory. Not you know saying, well, you should do this and you should do that. Not giving advice, but saying, I felt this way and I did these things and, and I feel better now. Or I felt this way and I did these things and it didn't help. I mean, that's another, you know, another way that we can help. But we don't, we don't say... And if you do the same thing, you will feel better. Because that doesn't lead to a feeling of safety. But being able to share when we've been in a similar place and that we got through it, I think really can enhance a feeling of safety and security and allow people in pain, whether it's us or somebody else, to to open up and to connect in the way that is essential to recovery. You know, having a sponsor is another aspect of that, that a sponsor needs to be somebody we feel safe with, somebody we can share whatever we need to share with. And being able to find our understanding of a higher power that loves us and supports us, I think also uh, tends to bring us to a place of feeling more safe and eventually bring us to a place where we can we can start to feel safe without without needing external help that we can feel safe in ourselves and in our life. So this this system, this subsystem of our nerves, nervous system that uh, triggers our social engagement capability is activated. It says this subsystem connects the heart, larynx, sinus, and ears. When this subsystem is active, the voice is primed to articulate emotion and emotional nuance. The face is energized to gesture communicatively. A part of our inner ear contracts so that we are more set to be able to distinguish human voice from other sounds in the environment more readily. Taken together, it is easy to see that when this subsystem is active, we are at our best in terms of connecting and working through whatever needs to be dealt with in the social-emotional realm. This subsystem defines the functionality of our readiness 
to invite and respond to others. And, you know, that's kind of, that's like fascinating to me that, in fact, there are physical changes that happen that make us more able to respond emotionally and to express emotion. I, I really didn't know that before. It says, but what happens when the system is not up and running? Should our sensory organs detect an internal or external threat to safety, the social engagement capacities described above shut down instantaneously. When our senses detect danger, a second system fires up. If that danger seems life-threatening, a third system comes to the fore and the other two go dark. Depending on the degree of safety or danger, one of the three subsystems lights up and the others are dark. So this, again, this is a physical change, whether we feel safe, whether we feel threatened, or whether we feel uh, life-threatened danger, that we actually react in three different ways physically. Somewhat fascinating. So then the author goes on to talk about a particular case that um, came to uh, their attention. I think uh, the author is a psychologist uh, or a therapist, and I'm sure that the names here are pseudonyms. Patricia and Vaughn are a 30-something couple that I worked with this past year in couples therapy. Patricia initially described Vaughn as unresponsive. Quote, he's low-key to a fault except when he gets angry. Vaughn acknowledged having difficulty talking about his feelings and told me that he was often unaware of what he was feeling. Wow, uh, I'm, I'm identifying, right away I'm identifying with Vaughn, okay? I'm kind of mellow, uh, but definitely in the past, and to some extent still, when I get angry, uh, I'm not low-key. I can be loud, I can be forceful, and I can react physically against objects banging the table, slamming doors, etc. So I'm identifying with Vaughn already. Uh, he goes on to describe Vaughn, and this description doesn't, doesn't fit me precisely, okay, but we'll work with it. He is the son of an emotionally distant father and lost his mother to cancer when he was a six-year-old. He associates putting trust in those closest to him with feelings of loss and loneliness. Given his history, fears of closeness with Patricia made sense. In fact, when he was getting closer to her, the closer the closeness in itself might trigger anger because it stirred up fears of being abandoned or disappointed again. Here we have some origin of you know what's going on with him and you know I have to I have to sort of think on this, but again, I'm I'm identifying a little bit here that well, as I said in the in the intimacy talk, I mean I never really learned to talk about feelings express feelings. It was not something that was modeled for me growing up. I do have, um, you know, a fear of being judged, um, an expectation, I think, of being judged that whatever I say will be, you know, not good enough, will be put down. And I think some of that comes from experiences with my peers in school. Uh, I was often teased and bullied it was not safe for me to be different. And if I expressed what I really felt, what I really thought, I would be perceived as different. And so I learned to not say those things. And and so I don't think I have this closeness itself triggering anger, but I do have this this underlying feeling that if, if I really open up, um, you're not going to like me. And I want to be liked. The author says... It seemed to me that Vaughn's social engagement system had been chronically shut down. I worked with him and Patricia to encourage a sense of emotional safety within him and by extension within the relationship. Being able to talk about anger in a calm and non-accusatory way, for example, proved soothing and served to help Vaughn not just open up, but to become less angry. Part of his anger had to do with feeling out of touch with himself. It is interesting to think about this in terms of his nervous system functionality. With the social engagement subsystem down, he was out of touch with his ability to invite or respond to the soothing connectedness he needed. And again, I'm, I'm identifying here with the difference between the way that I can engage, the way that I can open up emotionally, spiritually with other people in my meetings because I feel safe and the way in which I shut down that same capability when I'm with my wife because apparently I don't feel safe in that way. So 
very illuminating and giving me a place to start from, another place to start from in terms of working my recovery tools on this problem. Found another blog, uh, again from Psychology Today, about emotional safety. In part, it says, emotional safety comes from within us. It is the knowing of what we're feeling, the ability to be able to identify our feelings, and then take the ultimate risk of feeling them. Granted, in the presence of war, childhood neglect, trauma, and abuse of all kinds, we may never have known the feeling of being safe at all. It may be absolutely foreign to us, and so we may believe that safety is a dream that will never come true. I think that almost all of us are in need of healing on one or more levels. My experience as both a doctor and patient is that healing leads to transformation. I believe strongly that once we are aware, we are no longer naive. Shining light in the shadows is a scary proposition. Understanding that being vulnerable to feeling your feelings is both the good and bad news may still be a difficult pill to swallow. Emotional safety is a combination of willingness, courage, and action. I believe that you're worth it. Do you? So that's a bit of a challenge. Opening here, emotional safety comes from within us. I think that's a lot of what our recovery program is is helping us to find is that we can be secure, that we can be sufficient in ourselves with the help of our higher power. And I spent so much of my life looking for validation, looking for support, looking for fulfillment from other people and not being able to find it in myself. And this, I think, is really to some extent, the fundamental challenge of my recovery. And it connects actually to uh, my my Saturday meeting, my step meeting, where I sat at the table that once a month talks about traditions, and we were at Tradition 7, which is about being self-sufficient, supporting, it, and in the terms of Al-Anon, we're supported by our own contributions, but in the terms of ourselves, we can be, we can come to be sufficient in ourselves to not need other people to feel whole, to not need other people to feel joy, to not need other people to feel serenity and happiness. Which doesn't mean that other people can't help. Which doesn't mean that we don't want to be with other people, but that the, the core of recovery work I, I, is, is really finding a way to be, to like ourselves um, and to be self-sufficient, at least in the fundamentals of life. Because when we're self-sufficient in the fundamentals of life, then we have the capacity for more. And when we feel not self-sufficient, when we feel threatened, when we feel afraid, sad, fearful, shameful, insufficient, then it's really hard to go beyond that. It's really hard to to find joy, to find serenity. I think this is really important that that I I need to feel emotionally safe within myself. I need to be able to identify my feelings and take the risk of feeling them and be vulnerable. That's the good news and the bad news. Vulnerability. And willingness, courage, and action. And how many of our steps talk about becoming willing? Step eight, being willing to make amends to them all. Step six, being willing to ask our higher power to remove all of our all our shortcomings, defects of character, whatever it is the word says. And step three, I think, is a, a step about willingness. Willingness to put our life into the care of, of a power greater than ourselves. It's a lot of willingness and it takes courage and then we have to take the action. So there we are, recovering in a nutshell, willingness, courage, and action. Another a way in which emotional safety expresses, I think, is what we've got here. This is from another, another article. Uh, again, links will be in the show notes. I think this one was titled, Keeping Relationships Emotionally Safe. When couples achieve emotional safety, one partner can say something stupid and the other partner ignores it or doesn't look at it as significant. There's a level of trust. But when they lose that safety, everything has the potential to flare up. They stop taking things at face value or giving each other the benefit of the doubt. Under those circumstances, it's very difficult to make progress on issues in the relationship. And there we are. Uh, when, when we 
lose that safety, we stop taking things at face value, and we stop giving each other the benefit of the doubt, we start feeling threatened, we start feeling criticized, and and we react. And that, I think, is sort of a vicious circle that then decreases the feeling of emotional safety. When a spouse feels there's a threat to the attachment, they become very upset, they protest. Too often their protest takes the form of criticizing the other partner. Example, you never come home on time rather than, I really miss you. You know, that's a tool that, that I learned. I don't think it's really taught in in our literature. Um, I must have learned it in, in a therapy setting. I think I first heard about it. I first heard about it to know that I heard about it in um, a friends and family day at a treatment center talking about high statements, talking about expressing how I feel when my partner does something and hopefully why I feel that way, something about why I feel that way. So instead of you never come home on time, I feel lonely and afraid when you don't come home on time, at least partly because I'm afraid something horrible has happened to you. I worry about something happening to you. And there's a number of things going on in there in that in that difference. One is it's it's not attacking the other person. It's not criticizing my partner. Um, it's all about me and how I feel in a situation and and in the truth of the situation, you know, maybe my partner didn't come home on time. And they there's there again, there's no criticism there. It's a statement of fact. I mean they they may take it as criticism, but I'm expressing my feeling about what happened and and a little bit about why I might be feeling that way and it and it helps to open conversation rather than close down conversation it it helps helps to maybe invite more discussion it helps to invite closeness rather than pushing it away to this dynamic he adds the shame factor your partner has a much greater capacity to stimulate your shame because both she or he knows you better than anyone else and because you care more about what they think of you. When you get a sense that your partner's view of you is negative, quote, you were selfish, that tends to stir up your shame, even though you probably don't recognize your feeling as shame. And that's, you know, that's also interesting for me to, to think about because I have this this core feeling still that you know, I'm not good enough. And so when somebody that I love criticizes me or when I think they're criticizing me, um, yeah, that's going to stir up that I'm not good enough feeling, that shame feeling, and I'm going to react probably with anger because that's my pattern. Coming back to Sarah's question about sort of emotional versus physical abuse, I found a pamphlet, a a tip sheet, they call it, from the National Center on Domestic Violence, Trauma, and Mental Health, titled Tips for Enhancing Emotional Safety. And it's really addressed at caregivers about when a caregiver is dealing with somebody who has suffered uh, trauma, violence, domestic violence, how to help provide a feeling of emotional safety so that the person can start to recover. And uh, just pulled a couple things out of here. It says, most survivors have probably felt emotionally unsafe or had their sense of being all right taken away. And and I pulled that sentence because that sentence does not say that whatever happened has to have been physical. If something happened that leaves you feeling emotionally unsafe or having your sense of being all right taken away, then that in itself is a threat to your serenity. It's a threat to your... Survival, really. And most survivors tell us that the ongoing and unrelenting attacks on their sense of well-being are more painful than a beating. Okay. So again, this is, this is from the National Center on Domestic Violence, Trauma, and Mental Health. And they're saying that attacks on somebody's sense of well-being can be, are often felt as more painful than physical violence. So coming back to, to Sarah's email, I think, that just reinforces my notion that emotional attacks can be at least as devastating, can be as devastating, let's not put a qualifier on it, can be as devastating as physical attacks and can have a very similar effect on 
you know, your ability to continue to, to live and, and you know, on your serenity, on your, on your well-being itself. Trauma can disrupt a person's sense of well-being. It can also have direct effects on the brain, changing how the person experiences the world and how they perceive danger. Some survivors find it helpful to hear that trauma responses are real and that they make sense. Learning about trauma triggers can help survivors understand and manage their feelings and can increase a survivor's sense of control and autonomy. And I think this is a place where talking to an experienced therapist can be very helpful. Uh, you know, learning about trauma triggers, learning how to manage feelings, and, and this can lead to increasing a sense of control and autonomy and eventually leading to that self-sufficiency I was talking about earlier. Another post about emotional safety, why it's important. Pulled out a paragraph. We aren't criticals because we are bad people. We do it because it feels safer to blame than to let ourselves be vulnerable and talk about our emotional needs. And I, I see myself in those two sentences. If I don't feel safe being vulnerable, I don't feel safe talking about my emotional needs, then I can deflect. I can deflect by being critical or by at least by being distant and, and shut down. It says, and also, because talking like this was probably never modeled for us, and that, that's, I know that's true for me. We don't get defensive because we are bad people, but we hear our partner's criticisms as an attack on our person, and we will do whatever we can not to feel the sense of inadequacy and shame our partner triggers in us. Talked about this earlier, but again, an attack on my person. So when my partner criticizes something that I do, I often don't hear that as a criticism of the action. I hear it as a criticism of the person. It's not, I did something I should have done, shouldn't have done. I did something that caused hurt, that, that caused at least a bad, some kind of bad outcome. What I hear is, I'm a bad person. And, you know, I react to that. I become defensive. No question about it. And it's about my perception, it's often very much about my perception. The, the tools of this program, the tools of recovery can help me to change that perception, can help me to change that attitude. One more that I found, where does safety reside? This is in part, our partner often seems to just keep on doing or not doing exactly the things that light up the feelings of lack of safety. This may seem like bad news, but it's not. I'm like, what? The understanding and acceptance of this fact is one of the steps on the path to building internal safety structures. This leads back to the question, where does the sense of safety actually reside? Is it available only when the outer environment gives it to us? And that, you know, that's a really, that's a key question. And one, one of the things that I learned in this program, and I learned it by, by it happening to me, is I don't get serenity by having everything be right around me. I got serenity in my life by working this program, and it came to me even though my wife was still drinking alcoholically, that there was still chaos in my life. But somehow, through working the steps of this program, by going to meetings, by reading the literature, by praying and meditating, by having a sponsor, and not necessarily all in that order, of course. And all of those things that, that we're recommended to do, just by doing those things, somehow I found serenity. Somehow I went from being a fearful, rageaholic in despair to having moments, hours, or days of serenity even when the crazy was still going on around me. So that sense of safety, that sense of serenity has to, has to be available to me, even when the outer environment is not giving it to me. As children, we needed the outer environment to be safe. As children, that was the case. And, and reading again, as children, we were physically and emotionally dependent on our caregivers. Brain science has determined that the internal scaffolding we create in our minds about how the world works is deeply patterned by the time we are six or seven years old. When those structures are developed as children, we bring them with us into our adult relationships. If, however, we are lacking in those internal formations, 
We have the capacity to develop them. We possess the capacity to literally complete the task of growing ourselves up. And I think that's that's one of the the good news is the good news of recovery that we can complete that growing up that where we are still living in our childhood because we never had the capacity or we were never given the environment in which and the the strength and the tools with which to move from childhood thinking to being a self-sufficient adult that we can find those in recovery that we can change the way we think we can actually change our brains how do we find a sense of safety in our most intimate relationships when it seems to be playing hide and seek with us we can call come out come out wherever you are like this the key is to begin to make friends with the sense of feeling unsafe don't try to get rid of it don't scold it in the same way a loving parent would comfort a scared child you can compassionately invite your sense of unsafe to reveal itself to you each time you do this your compassion is literally building rebuilding structures of safety i think this is you know this is what we do in meetings when we talk about our pain when we talk about the situations that that we lived in or through that have brought us to where we are and when we talk about our fears and when we listen and when we talk about our successes maybe hearing other people who have been where we are helps us to look at ourselves with a sense of compassion and helps us to as it says rebuild our structures of safety so the next time you find yourself wanting your partner to stop doing that oh so irritating thing that makes you feel unsafe Let that be a signal to you to quietly take even the briefest of moments to take a deep breath and bring compassion to the scared, unsafe child lurking inside you. Here you will find where safety really resides. The work on the inside will begin to change your experience of the world. I I don't think I could say it better. Um, This is what recovery has given me. This is what recovery can give you. Um, If you give it a chance, if you're willing and have the courage, God grant me the courage, to change the things I can. Um, then we can all find recovery, we can all find emotional security and safety within ourselves. Sometimes slowly, sometimes quickly, but it will, it will happen if we work for it. After a short break, we will continue with our lives in recovery, where we talk about how recovery works in our daily lives and in our meetings. The first musical selection that I want to talk about is the song, and and this came to me as a connection to the thing here about take even the briefest of moments to take a deep breath and bring compassion to the scared, unsafe child lurking inside you. You can compassionately invite your sense of unsafe to reveal itself to you. So this song is called Oblivion. It's by the singer Grimes. And you can listen to this at therecoveryshow.com slash 146. And Grimes said, The song is about being violently assaulted, and it made me crazy for a few years. I got really paranoid walking around at night and started feeling really unsafe. The song is more about empowering myself physically amongst a masculine power and the hate of feeling powerless, making light of masculine physical power, making it jovial and non-threatening. I took a typically violent cultural situation and made it pop and happy. And if you keep that description in mind as you're watching the video, which is, it's got scenes of a football game, it's got scenes of, of motorcyclists jumping off of jumping over hills, and, and it's got her as this small, frail uh, young woman in the middle of a locker room full of you know, big manly men pumping iron and so on. When I first saw the video, I was like, what the heck is going on here? And then I read this description, and now the video makes sense, this sense of her empowering herself physically amongst masculine power as a path to recovery from a traumatic situation that made her feel unsafe. this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery, what's happening in our meetings and our lives this week, and talk about a couple of meetings. Uh, Sunday 
last Sunday, uh, we had uh, first step at at both tables in that meeting, which is unusual. There were, um, I think, four or five newcomers. And so this is Michigan. We have what we call table meetings where we have one, two, three, or more tables in a room. And each table um, talks about uh, whatever topic they they're they're focused on, and usually in this particular Sunday night meeting, each table chooses its own topic. And if we have newcomers, we ask them to all sit at one table, and that table does a first step, which we talk about. We read about step one from the book, and then we talk about our experience coming into the program and about our recovery. And so we did that at both tables. So clearly there was a need. And my Saturday meeting, as I mentioned, we talked about Tradition 7, about being emotionally and spiritually self-supporting, also about being financially self-supporting in the program and and out of the program. And, and I was able to sort of see this tradition from two directions uh, with the help of the book Reaching for Personal Freedom, which asks questions about how I'm sort of emotionally and spiritually self-sufficient, but also asks how am I allowing others to be self-sufficient. And I reflected on, as I have um, in the previous discussion, uh, this notion that recovery helps me to be emotionally and spiritually sufficient in myself, to not need, to not have that that hole in me that I'm trying to fill with other people, that I can fill that with myself and with my higher power, um, something that I, that I got from recovery. But also... Uh, and in particular in my life, reflecting on allowing my children to grow up and be adults and to meet their challenges in their own way. I had a recent experience of that. Uh, my daughter has a car, and this car has a moonroof, which was apparently an aftermarket installation. She bought it used, so we we don't know for sure. And it started leaking. And she came to me and said, it leaks. Is this a problem? What can I do about it? And and I said, well, you could, you know, maybe you could go get some some strippable caulking. You could just caulk around the opening and then the water wouldn't get in. You know, apparently something is that's supposed to be keeping the water out is not working to do that. Of course, if you do that, you can't open the moonroof. So if you want to be able to open it, this isn't going to work. And she said, well, okay, maybe. And she went away. And the next thing I heard was that her asking me, my wife, and and I think her boyfriend if it would be possible for one of us to give her a ride to or from the shop and work for her on on uh, on Friday. Her boyfriend was able to give her a ride in the morning. I said I could give her a ride in the evening. And so I did that. I went and I picked her up. And uh, there's been some construction already starting in town. And it took me a long time to get to her work longer than than I had expected and I was coming from a doctor's appointment, so I really couldn't have come earlier. And by the time I picked her up, it was possible that we weren't going to get back to the shop before they closed. It was Friday. She wanted to have her car for the weekend, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, well, uh, you know, you can call them. See what see what you can arrange. And this is me letting her deal with her situation. And she did. She called them. And they said, well, hey, you can give us a credit card number over the phone, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, we got the car. But... Now talk about my emotional reactions here. So I heard she's spending money to get this leak fixed. It's a couple hundred dollars. And so my first thought is, that's a lot of money for her. Uh, she's living, she's not making a lot of money. She has student loans she has to pay. She has rent she has to pay, et cetera. And I know that that she's on a constrained budget. And so my first thought is, well, maybe I should offer to pay for this. And I squelched that one because... Uh, you know, I know that that if if she wants help, she can ask, and she didn't ask. And my second thought was, "Wow, that's a lot of money to pay to you know get a leak fixed." And I probably would have gone with the cock solution, but again, not my life. She's learning how to be self sufficient. She's learning how to make decisions about what she wants to spend her money on and what's important to her, and. My job as a parent at this point in our mutual lives is to let her do that and to support her in doing that. And so that includes not not saying these things, not saying, wow, that's a lot of money to spend on getting a leak fixed. I would have just cocked it, uh, you know, because that's my thinking, not her thinking. 
Yeah. So Tradition 7, kind of important in my life this week. And then and then today, this morning, Sunday, um, we had this uh, church service about the importance of human interaction, about the importance of connection and communication and touching emotionally or sometimes physically, including, uh, you know, greeting each other as a, as a spiritual practice uh, during the service. So, and that connected so well into the topic of the podcast. I mean, it just all like holds together here. It's kind of amazing. So upcoming topics, I want to talk about recovery and divorce. Um, are you divorced? Did you divorce from the alcoholic in your life? How has divorce aided your recovery? Uh, or how has recovery helped you in divorce? Uh, when, when you divorced, were you already in recovery? And how did you make that decision? All kinds of interesting directions we can go with the discussion of recovery and divorce. I want to thank the people who've already sent me contributions and the people who have invited me to call so that we can have a conversation. We welcome your thoughts. You can join our conversation. Please leave a voicemail or send us an email with your feedback or questions. Another topic that uh, I want to do is another in this series of the Gifts of Al-Anon. This statement, we will discover that we are both worthy of love and loving. We love others without losing ourselves, and we will learn to accept love in return. And I think that that promise kind of connects nicely to this emotional safety. Because in order to be feel worthy of love and loving, and to love others without losing ourself, I think a big component of that is being emotionally safe in, in that process, in that experience you can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. You can do that right now. You can pause the podcast and call 734-707-8795. You can also use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. If you prefer not to use your voice, you can send email to feedback at com. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's topic of emotional safety or any of our upcoming topics. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, let us know. And you can find out everything about The Recovery Show at our website, therecoveryshow.com. Includes notes for each episode, an occasional blog, links to the music we talk about, links to other recovery podcasts and websites that we like. And also, contact information is there. Just go to therecoveryshow.com slash contact to find all the ways you can talk to us, all the ways you can join our conversation. I'm going to take a short break before looking at the mailbag and our second musical selection, which again is available on the website, was suggested by Eric, and the song is Overcomer by Mandisa, and I understand this this was a theme song for a TV show called Overcomer, which I haven't seen. Uh, got some lyrics here that I think capture the experience and the thrust of the song, which I found I found the video and the song to be very moving, and and definitely um, you know relevant here in terms of overcoming adversity and and moving on with our lives, and maybe more than moving on with our lives. You're an overcomer. Stay in the fight till the final round. You're not going under because God is holding you right now. You might be down for a moment, feeling like it's hopeless. That's when he reminds you that you're an overcomer. Hey, so what do we got in the email? I got an email. Hi, Spencer and crew. Thank you so much for all you do. I love the podcast and tend to vomit it, its awesomeness on other people. I'll keep coming back. Triggers is a great topic, especially right now for me. I do not live with active alcoholism right now, but I do live with triggers from my daughter. My daughter about three years ago met a boy who is not the greatest person, in my opinion. I have yet to find compassion for him. My daughter had his baby this past December, and now I have a grandson. She and I did not speak for almost a year, and she came back into my life when she was pregnant. She has reconnected with him, I'm fairly sure, and his friends. Keep in mind, he has been in and out of jail, sells pot to make a living, and lives on the streets. I only know what my daughter has told me about this boy. She is showing signs of that similar behavior when she was with him all the time. With program, I speak my truth. I tell her how scared I am. 
paralyzed with fear for her and her son. It scares the crap out of me not knowing anything or if anything is true. When I use the tools of the program, I calm down. I know she too has a higher power, and I am not in control of her choices. I have not set up my boundaries with her since she has come to live with me. She is 18, almost 19, and her son is three and a half months old, and I have her sister who is nine. They both grew up in an alcoholic home. Their dad found his sobriety, and we are amazing friends. This triggers my daughter can bring out in me. It is like I just walked into the rooms for the first time. The more I talk about it, the more I work my program, the better we all are. Thank you for all your hard work. Peace and love to you, Roberta. And and thank you, Roberta, for, for sharing that, um, for, for opening up about your situation. And, you know, I see in what you say there that this process that we use in the program helps us in so many ways. You know, it helps us to stay connected with those we love even when we're scared for them or scared maybe of them. So thanks for writing. Got a uh, got a phone call from Brian. Hi, Spencer and Company. It's Brian Jack. Listening to So You Was an Alcoholic. Uh, and a lot of things came to mind. One of which was something my therapist shared with me recently is that one of the things that I have to cope with in the relationship with my qualifier is my part in this. It felt very, very Al-Anon when she said it. Um, I need allow need to allow myself to be angry, and then I need to resolve it. And, uh, the speakers in So You Love an Alcoholic uh, definitely took me there. There's a lot of things from our relationship that I really think I've spent most of the time blaming my qualifier for. And even if I only have some small percentage or portion of what happens happened, I still need to own it. And I still need to learn from it. Because that's what I pray for from my higher power today. Is hopefully to learn the lessons that he's trying to present me. So hopefully I don't have to learn them again. Um, yeah. Thank you for what you do and I appreciate it. Thank you, Brian, uh, for that uh, really eloquent statement of, of how we move forward, how we recover. It doesn't cost you anything to listen to The Recovery Show, but we do have expenses, which run about $60 a month. You can help to support us and keep us on the web and in your ear in a couple of ways. We have a donation button on the website where you can support us directly. We have also put together a list of recovery-related books. Click on the books link on the menu at the top of the page. If you order one of these books from Amazon through our website, we will receive a small commission. In fact, anything you order from Amazon after clicking on one of the links will help us. It costs you nothing extra and helps to keep us on the air. Thank you for your support in whatever form you give it. Maybe mentioning the podcast to your friend or including just listening to us. We are here for you. And the last song selection is The Voice Within by Christina Aguilera. Here's some of the lyrics. When you're safe inside your room, you tend to dream of a place where nothing's harder than it seems. No one ever wants or bothers to explain of the heartache life can bring and what it means. When there's no one else, look inside yourself. Like your oldest friend, just trust the voice within. Then you'll find the strength that will guide your way. You'll learn to begin to trust the voice within. And again, I think many of us, and I include myself, have found it very difficult to trust that voice within. And through the path of the 12 steps, through working the program of recovery that we've been given, we can start to find that trust. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. My understanding, love, and peace growing you one day at a time.